Welcome to the Bible Unthumped. I'm David Kay. I'm not a scholar of the Bible, but I've spent my entire life reading and studying it. And I've found that many people don't really understand the Bible they're thumping. So on this podcast, we get into the story behind the stories that were collected into books that became the book we know today as the Bible. You can have faith and still ask questions. This is the Bible Unthumped. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the third arc of this podcast, episode 3.5. We are talking in this arc about the biblical creation accounts. We talked in episode 3.1 about the fact that the Bible contains two creation stories that were written in ancient Israel, one a few centuries earlier than the other. We then spent episodes 3.2 and 3.3 talking about the Garden of Eden story, which is the earlier of those two stories in terms of when it was written. And in the last episode, we started talking about the seven-day creation story that starts your Bible at Genesis 1.1. We got through day three of that story, so today we will talk about days four, five, and six, and God's rest period on the seventh day. So in the last episode, we noted that the ancient pre-scientific conception of the cosmos was rather like a snow globe, with land and sea at the base and then a dome above it which held up the heavens where the gods lived as well as a sort of sea in the sky where rain comes from. And on the first three days of creation, the god, called Elohim, not Yahweh you remember, built the snow globe cosmos through a series of three separations, light from dark on day one, the waters above the dome from the waters below the dome on day two, and then the land from the seas on day three. In building the snow globe, Elohim has addressed one of the pre-existing chaotic world's two basic flaws we noted from the opening lines in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. It was formless, it had no structure. Days 1, 2, and 3 provide the structure for the cosmos. But the world, before God Elohim started shaping it, was not only formless, it was also void or empty. So today, in discussing days 4, 5, and 6, we will see how Elohim filled the empty world, provided it with a population, that is to say. And you will remember that last week we talked about how it is helpful to think of this creation story by imagining a chart, three across and two down. Creation days 1, 2, and 3 are in the top boxes, and then days 4, 5, and 6 are in the boxes across the bottom. Day 4 under day 1, day 5 under day 2, and day 6 under day 3. The top row, the first three days, are when God provides form to the formless world, and the bottom row, the next three days, are when God fills the empty world. The chart illustrates the literary structure of the story and what's taking place on each day. I think with that quick review, we are ready to talk about day 4 of creation, which starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Day four requires us to belabor a few things. It's an interesting day. In fact, this is a good moment to talk about the Hebrew word for day. The word here is yom, as in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So we have six yoms of creation in our story, and we are talking about yom number four. I haven't emphasized this up to this point, but each day in the story ends with a note that there was evening and then morning. In each case, a day has passed. 
An interesting thing to note is that here on day four, we are about to see that God creates the sun, among other things. Well, we measure days by the solar cycle. The sun rises and the sun sets and the sun rises again, and that's how we know a day has gone by. And then we subdivide that cycle into segments called hours, 24 of them. So how can the first three days of creation have taken place with no sun to measure them by? And this is that moment in the Bible, already in the first chapter of Genesis, when the tiresome debate between the Bible and science really ramps up. Biblical literalists who understand a bit of Hebrew will note that the word yom means day, a plain old simple day just as we normally think of it. In the vast majority of cases in Hebrew literature, morning and evening, that's a day in the normal way of thinking of days. We should take the word day in this passage to mean a 24-hour period, literalists say. Whether the sun exists yet, as on days four and thereafter, or not as on days one through three. But often non-literalists, who prefer to acknowledge the scientific reality that the cosmos didn't suddenly appear during the span of a week, make an interesting accommodation here. This accommodation is an interpretation of Genesis 1 known as the day-age theory. In this theory, we agree with science that the universe is profoundly ancient and took more than six days to form. And with just a little sleight of hand that says a day for God is like a thousand years, which we read elsewhere in the Bible, we can liberate the word day. Maybe this story is told from God's vantage point, where a day is however long we need it to be, to be reasonably deferential to science. To me, day-age theory is a bit like this, and bear with me. Remember the story I told back in episode 3.1 when we started this episode arc about how the Grand Canyon was formed when Paul Bunyan dragged his axe through the desert. Day-age theory is a bit like someone who observes the intricacies and variations of the rock formations in the canyon, and who comes to the conclusion that if we just change our definition of the word axe, to mean any of an array of differently shaped and draggable tools that could account for these complicated rock formations, then we can preserve the Paul Bunyan story as factually true. You can see why that seems a bit wrong-headed. Okay, so here's the deal, Bible unthumpers. If you are hung up on this point, was the world created in six literal days, you have wrapped yourself around an axle that couldn't be more beside the point. But it's okay, we're going to keep talking it through. We're just still getting started on this podcast, and unthumping takes time, as I well know. The answer is, yes, these are 24-hour days, or yoms, here in Genesis 1. Seven of them in sequence, one right after the other. That's what the storyteller intends. So, point to the literalists. But, should the story be taken literally in the first place? Does Paul Bunyan explain the Grand Canyon? No. We'll say much more about the non-literal point next week. For now, the days in this story, the yoms, are not literal. They are literary. All right, back to day four. God is filling voids. On day one, the god Elohim had separated light from darkness. That is the first, the top left, box on our chart. Day four is the corresponding day, just below day one. So Elohim, on day four, 
is going to fill the void that corresponds to day one. That is, Elohim populates the light and the dark. He creates the sun to fill the light day, and he creates the moon and stars to fill the dark night. Day one and day four go together in this way. Elohim makes the sun and moon, we are told in verse 14, as markers for the passage of time, for seasons and days and years. They are there to provide the natural calendar. He also makes them for governance. The sun rules the day, we are told. The moon and stars rule the night. What does that mean? This phrasing is notable because in the ancient mind, what happened in the heavens dictated events on earth. That to say, astrology, the study of the stars as an explanation for earthly events, is a very ancient pseudoscience. The sun, moon, planets, and stars are the governors in this sense, and this was common belief throughout the ancient Near East. The sun was a god called Ra in Egypt. The Greek heroes lived among the stars, the constellations. The Roman emperors were elevated to the heavens when they died. It's why a star over Bethlehem might be a signal that something notable has happened on Earth. The point of all these beliefs is that what goes on up there affects how life plays out down here. It is not a stretch to imagine that the original audience for our story understood that on day four, God made other divinities and put them up in the heavens to rule the day and the night, the other heavenly actors in the earthly story. If this is too much to grab onto for now, no worries, just pointing out ancient cosmic understandings. Finally, for day four, note that Elohim makes the sun, moon, and stars and then sets them, verse 17, in the firmament or dome. So in our snow globe, ancient cosmic understanding, the sun and moon and stars, the heavenly bodies way up there that you can see from Earth, are attached to the dome and moving across its surface. That's where they live, and now light and dark from day one are not void or empty anymore as of day four. They are populated with celestial bodies. If you have picked up the pattern as illustrated by our chart, you will already know that the forms that Elohim created on day two, the upper middle box, are going to have to be filled or populated on day five. These days correspond to each other, just like days one and four correspond. So, what did Elohim make back on day two? That was the day he separated the waters and built the dome that made the sky and seas. So now we have to fill the sky and sea void. Guess what Elohim creates on day five? It's birds and fish. Even as a kid, I thought day five was a weird one. On the other days, God made something as profound as light and darkness, or the very earth, or everything in outer space. On a single day, we were told, God created galaxies and pulsars and comets and giant planets and solar systems. But on this day, day four, all he bothered to make were birds and fish. It seemed comparatively lazy. It just didn't compute for me, but then I hadn't been taught about the chart and how the void of day five had to reference the form of day two. Anyway, day five is just birds who live in the sky above and fish, or more accurately and generally, sea creatures, who live in the waters below. Elohim commands the birds and sea creatures to multiply and fill the sky and sea respectively. 
he had not told the sun and moon to multiply, but conversely, he does not tell birds and fish to govern anything. If day five was a pretty minor day in the scope of creation, day six is a really big one. Back to our three by two chart of boxes, day six in the bottom right box corresponds to day three. What was formed on day three? The land. So on day six, we have to fill the land. Sure enough, on this final day of creation, we get all of the terrestrial creatures, including humans. A couple of notes on humans. First, humans are told to multiply and fill the earth, and they are told that they are to have dominion over the earth. So, while the sun and moon don't multiply, but they do get put in charge of heavenly things, and while fish and birds do multiply, but don't get put in charge of anything, the humans are both told to multiply and are put in charge of earthly things. So, days four and five are an either-or proposition, but humans on day six are special, a both-and proposition, multiply and govern. Second note on humans. The humans in our story are the part of creation made in the image of God, imago Dei in Latin. Let us make man in our image, Elohim says in verse 26. By the way, note that just like in the Garden of Eden story, we have a plural God. Let us make humans in our image. If you want to hear more about that, re-listen to episode 3.3. So what does the image of God even mean? Well, it's not clear in the text. A lot of readers want to make this very non-physical that being in the image of God has to do with humans' creative abilities, reflecting the creator God, or their governing responsibility, mirroring God as the all-powerful ruler, or that humans have immortal souls sharing a certain infinity with God. Maybe, but none of that is in the text, just speculations. And I am inclined to think myself the storyteller is, in fact, just like it seems on the face of things, speaking in more physical terms than most readers assume. In the primordial setting of the world and in the ancient primitive conceptions of God, it is hardly shocking to imagine that he had physical arms and legs just like Zeus or Osiris or Minerva. The storyteller probably intends to convey that the humans are the part of creation that reflect the gods, that bear the image of them, that look like them, you see, physically speaking. But maybe not. I want to note as an interesting aside that in verses 29 and 30, we see it very specifically that God has given plants to humans and animals for food. Plants, not meat. This is a vegetarian world. Now, quickly skip over to chapter 9, where we are at the end of the Noah's Ark story, and we see many echoed phrases that harken back to chapter 1. We see in Genesis 9, 2, and 3 that now, following the great flood, God allows people to eat meat. I had given you plants to eat, but now also animals. These verses and the seven-day creation story you see were both written by the same storyteller. There's not much explanation offered, just an interesting aside that relates to our story. So we filled in the top row of our chart with the forms of days one, two, and three, and we filled in the bottom row of our chart with the corresponding populations of days four, five, and six. And so, God Elohim has managed to fix the formless and empty world that existed when we started the story. The watery chaos, the tehom in Hebrew, 
has been transformed into the orderly world the ancient people knew. All of it in six days and all of it pronounced to be good. But there is a very important seventh day in the story. This is the day on which Elohim rested from all of the work that he had done. This is now in chapter 2, verse 2. Remember that our chapter breaks here are messed up, so the seven-day creation story spills over from chapter 1 and goes to the first part of chapter 2, verse 4, where the distinct story of the Garden of Eden starts. But what does it mean for God to rest? Why would a God need to rest? I don't know, but it's really beside the point of the story, except that it explains and supports the idea that each week has a day of rest at the end. This is back to the genre of the text, which is etiology, an explanation for how something came to be the way that it is. Jewish life was ordered around a seven-day week that culminates in a day of rest. That was critically important both culturally and legally. You must not work on the seventh day, the Sabbath, because it is dedicated to rest, following the pattern that God set for us when he ceased his labors at the end of the week of creation. How did we get this seven-day pattern with a Sabbath day rest at the end? Well, let me tell you an origin story. We Jews do what God did in creation, work six days, then rest. Other cultures had weeks that lasted for a different number of days, by the way, such as Egypt, which had 10-day weeks, and the early Romans, who had eight-day weeks. Scholars believe the seven-day week among the Israelites was probably inherited from the earlier Mesopotamians who had been living on that same cadence long before. In Israelite culture, various numbers mean various things. Seven is a number that signifies completion. So it makes sense that an Israelite creation story would need to take place over the course of a week. On the seventh day, the world's reshaping is complete. We are done. So, seven days. It would make no sense symbolically for the creation to take place in four days or ten days or something. The storyteller deliberately employs a seven-day week. It's complete. Some other examples of biblical seven usage. Joshua marches around Jericho seven times. The lampstand in the Jerusalem temple has seven branches. The captivity in Babylon is done after 70 years, seven times ten. And the year of Jubilee, or freedom for slaves, occurs in the 49th year, seven times seven. The author of Revelation uses sevens many, many times in his trippy symbology. In fact, here in our creation story, not only is the number of days seven, God is mentioned 35 times, earth is mentioned 21 times, heaven slash dome together are mentioned 21 times, and the goodness of the creation is pronounced seven times. Everything is a multiple of seven. It's an important and deliberate literary device and we've reached the end for today. That was a lot. We've finished both of our biblical creation stories, so what I'd like to do in the next episode is a bit of compare and contrast between these two stories, and then talk about science. We kind of have to. How does someone unthumping the Bible think about these stories in relationship to what the scientific community has observed? I hope you will tune in for that. Remember that we have an interview episode coming up as well. That is kind of our pattern for each arc of this podcast. Six presentation episodes on a subject, capped with a seventh interview episode. Seven, just like the Israelites, just like the god Elohim. So if you have questions you'd like to have addressed during the interview, 
just email those to thebibleunthumped at gmail.com. That's the email to use to be in touch with the podcast. As always, thanks for listening and for sharing. Less thumping, more understanding. See you next time.